Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. The Peter Schiff Show. Well, if you thought the ADP jobs report was a surprise, the one we got today from the government, the official non-farm payroll report, that one was a real shocker because the expectation again was for a loss of over 7.7 million jobs in the month of May. And that was going to follow the 20.5 million uh, jobs that were lost in April. In fact, they did revise that month up. So the now the loss for April is 20,687,000 jobs lost in April. And so everybody was looking for another 7.7 million, even after the much lower than expected uh, number we got on Wednesday from ADP, although maybe some people were looking for a smaller loss. Nobody was looking for a gain, which is what we got. We got a gain of just over two and a half million jobs in the month of May. That is a record. We've never gained two and a half million jobs in a single month. Of course, we've never lost 20 plus million. We set that record uh, during the prior month. But we know that lots of people were laid off in May. Probably eight to 10 million people got laid off. Well, apparently, maybe 12 million people got rehired, right? A lot of the people who were fired in March right? They must, or rather in April, a lot of those people were rehired in May, right? Because we fired almost 21 people in the prior month. So a lot of those people were rehired. And so the net of that was that more people who had already been fired got rehired than the new people that were fired. And that's why we still had all these new claims for unemployment, yet the actual uh, number of people unemployed went down, right? The unemployment rate went from 14.7%. The expectation was for a rise to 19.8. And instead, it went down to 13.3 because more people who had lost their jobs in the past got rehired, uh, and that number exceeded the number of new guys that got fired. And, you know, when you look at the, uh, the, the breakdown by race, right, this also caused a bit of a problem today, given the environment that we're in right now, uh, because people noticed that the unemployment rate for blacks actually went up, right? It went from 16.7% to 16.8. I mean, not a big increase, but it was an increase. And if you just pull out whites, white unemployment went from 14.2% to 12.4%. So again, a lot of people are saying, oh, you see, this is racism. It's the white guys that got their jobs back and unemployment went up even higher. 
uh, for blacks, except when you look at Asian unemployment, the Asian unemployment rate actually went up more than the black unemployment rate. Asian unemployment went from 14.5 to 15. Now, unless you're going to concede that there's more racism against Asians than against African-Americans, which I don't think anybody is willing to do, then obviously the disparity is not because of racism. There must be some other factors at play uh, that are responsible for that, not race. And, and I think one of the likely contributors is probably the African-American workers are overrepresented in the types of jobs where you're likely to be paid more money in unemployment than you were paid when you had jobs. So they probably had a greater incentive not to return to work. And so that's probably one of the reasons uh, that it was skewed that way. And I'm sure a lot of the, uh, the people that did come back to work, remember, one of the reasons is because the government is paying companies either to not fire people in the first place or to rehire them. Remember, when you took out a loan, the PPP loans, Payroll Protection Program, it's, only, it's a grant if you don't fire anybody. And if you fire people, as long as you bring them back, uh, then you, you don't have to repay the loan. So there probably was a lot of pressure on a lot of businesses to rehire people that they probably don't even need. But if they don't bring them back, they're going to have to repay the PPP loan. So they brought them back anyway. Now, maybe they're being optimistic and they're hoping they're going to need them. But what's going to happen is when they find out they don't need them, a lot of the people that were rehired are going to get refired because you don't have to keep these people on the books permanently in order not to have to repay the loan. You just have to get them back on the books long enough to get the loan forgiven. And remember, there's a lot of other companies like the the airlines, for example, who got a lot of bailout money up front on the condition that they didn't lay people off. Well, there's a date where now they can start laying people off. So I think we have a lot of artificial uh, uh, incentives or interference in the market. We are we are spending a lot of money, right? The, the, the government has these huge deficits. The national debt now just went over $25.9 trillion, So we're almost at $26 trillion, right? The deficits are exploding. We are paying and we are printing a lot of money in order to prevent people from getting fired, right? So when you had Donald Trump, he did a press conference today. And of course, before the press conference, he was tweeting up a storm about how great these numbers are. Um, but how great would these numbers be if it wasn't for these massive deficits and all this money printing that is simply postponing a lot of the layoffs that are going to happen eventually anyway. In fact, we may end up exacerbating uh, the number of layoffs because we may be financially weakening uh, a lot of these companies uh, with the incentives that, that we've put into place. And in fact, one of the ironies too is you got Donald Trump is still demanding more stimulus, right? If the economy is so strong, why do we need to stimulate it even more? And in fact, this is one thing that all these V-shaped recovery guys are overlooking, right? And I'm going to get into the stock market reaction uh, in a minute. But for everybody who now thinks that the worst is behind us, right, that the recession is over, that the economy is roaring back, right, that we're over it now, right? If you really think that, right, that this, it's over, right, that it was, it's, it was quick and as quickly as we went into recession, we came out. Right? No harm, no foul. Everything is fine. If that really is the case, how is the Fed going to withdraw all that liquidity? Right, Because if the Fed put all this liquidity into the economy, right, created all this money based on a more substantial downturn, a longer lasting, deeper recession depression, and to be preemptive, right, they just basically threw out the kitchen sink in terms of money printing, right? And they printed all this money and bought up all these bonds and all these corporate bonds that they now own. But what if, what if they panicked? What if now everything is fine? How does the Fed withdraw that liquidity? It's impossible. How are they going to turn around and start selling all the bonds they bought? How are they going to raise interest rates when the whole supposed snapback is 100% a function of all the money they printed, right? So they can't withdraw the liquidity, but if the recession isn't even there, then even the Keynesians are going to concede, well, I guess we're going to have to deal with inflation then. I guess we're going to have rising prices. Well, if we're going to have a big increase in prices, is the Fed just going to let it happen? They're not going to do anything about it. They're not going to try to, uh, to fight it. And what is that going to do to interest rates? What happens to the so-called recovery 
if interest rates and consumer prices go up. So it, the whole thing is impossible, right? To believe that we're going to have a recovery this quickly it, it is impossible given what that would do and what that would force the Federal Reserve to do, which means there goes your, your recovery. But this is not going to be this quick recovery because people still don't understand the true nature, the true condition that the U.S. economy was in even before uh, the recession began with the COVID-19. I mean, this recession began with a bang, but it is not over, right? We're having a little bit of a bounce. Uh, now you have some false optimism about a recovery around the corner, but the economic damage existed before COVID-19 and now it's even greater. I mean, some of the, look at um, in the stock market, look at the, the XRT, which is an index of retailers. The retailer index has now regained everything that it lost. It's back to where it was in February before the market sold off, right? How is that possible that retailers right, are just as valuable today as they were before the recession started, before COVID-19, before the recent uh, looting and, 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 uh, and, and uh, vandalism? How can that possibly be? Because all these companies have had their earnings decimated not only their past earnings, but their future earnings are in jeopardy because even after they reopen, they're going to have to reopen with social distancing, which is going to dramatically diminish their sales. They have even more intense competition than they had before from the online retailers because a lot of the positives about you know uh, buying stuff through stores uh, don't exist anymore. So there's even greater incentives now for people to shop online. Uh, than there were before. A lot of these retailers have just been vandalized anyway. I mean, if they thought they were going to reopen, they can't, right? Because their shops don't, you know, have been, uh, you know, all, all their inventory has been stolen. But anyway, you look at it, retailers, whether it's, you know, clothing stores, malls, restaurants, they are in much worse position now than they were back in February when everybody was still optimistic and they thought no recession was anywhere in sight. Right. And the political landscape, I mean, people still thought that Trump was going to win. I mean, I looked at the numbers uh, uh, yesterday. They're the lowest they've been since he's been president as far as his odds of re-election and his probability. I mean, he's gone from being the favorite to now being a long shot. And, you know, I read uh, a, a, an article where people were now starting to think that, oh, you know, we have a good chance if Trump doesn't win, that corporate tax rates are going to go back to where they were before Trump cut them. I mean, that is just wishful thinking. If we get President Biden and we get Democrats controlling the House and the Senate, they're not just going to restore the corporate tax rate to where it was before. They're going to make it much higher. Number one, they're going to say, hey, we need to make up for all these years where the corporations got away with murder, right? We need to, we need to get back that money. But the deficits are huge. Government spending is off the charts. Taxes have to go up. In fact, even in the unlikely event, that Donald Trump is reelected, there's going to have to be some tax hikes, right? I mean, they can't do it all uh, with money printing. So taxes, I think, are going to go up even if Trump wins, which he probably won't. But if Biden wins, they're not just going to go back up to where they were before. The deficits are much bigger now than they were before Trump was elected. Government spending is dramatically greater now than it was before Trump was elected. And of course, remember, the government never likes to surrender all the extra government spending uh, that takes place in a crisis, right? It's now the new normal. So we're going to have to have much, much higher taxes. So the rates are going to be substantially higher, at least on corporations and higher income earners than they were uh, before Trump. So with all of this negative stuff, right, you would think that the stock market would be going down. Instead, the stock market took this number and just took off, right? This was proof that it, it is a V-shaped recovery. Everything is great. And the Dow was up at one point over a thousand points on the day. Uh, we only closed up about 829. So pretty big move. Back above 27,000, 27,110. I think the Dow is still down about 5% on the year. S&P 500 doing a lot better. Uh, I think it's only down about 1% or 2%. I'm not sure exactly, but that's about it. It was up 2.6% today. The NASDAQ made a new all-time record high. Highest it's ever been. 
It's now up about 10% on the year. And remember, it was overpriced when it ended last year. It was priced for perfection. As I said on the last podcast, we got the opposite of perfection, yet the NASDAQ is actually having a good year. We're up better than 10%. We're not even halfway through the year. The only index that's really down is the Russell 2000, which is not down nearly as much as it was. It had a good day today, up 3.8%. It's now only down about 10% on the year. I mean, it was down something like 30%, or I forget the exact amount, but it's had a very, very big recovery. Even though some of those small companies are the ones that are the most adversely affected by, by what's going on. But you know, the stock market is acting as if everything is fine, everything is great, and they're ignoring the fact that the only reason the economy has come back to life is because it's on artificial life support. It's not living on its own. It's living off of all these government tubes that are making it possible. But where is the oxygen coming from? It's the Fed, right? It's creating all this money. There is a cost to that, right? This is massive inflation. And investors still don't get that because the price of gold, again, was down about 30 bucks today. Uh, and it was already down before the number came out. But as soon as the number came out, it was better than expected. Gold lost like another 20 bucks. The gold stocks were down on the day, but they did close near the highs of the day or right on the highs. So gold stocks were generally down about 2%, uh, whereas earlier in the day this morning, they were down 4 or 5%. So they managed to pair uh, their losses. But you have a lot of gold stocks that have actually gone through bear markets now. There are a lot of gold stocks that have dropped by more than 20% uh, from their highs a week and a half ago, even though the price of gold is only about 3% below its highs. So we barely had a correction in the price of gold and we've had full-fledged bear markets in gold stocks. I mean, that shows you, uh, you know, how much nervousness there is out there among investors because how quickly they, they go to sell their gold stocks the minute the price of gold goes down even a tiny bit. I mean, that is the wall of worry that this bull market is uh, is scaling. You know, the bond market also got clobbered today. The yield on the 30-year was over 1.7% for a while, but it ended up closing at about 1.68%. Uh, but we've been edging high. Remember, I did the podcast a couple days ago. We just got about above 1.5%. I think if we get above 2%, uh, that's some big resistance. But if we do that, you know, we can have a pretty big move up to 3%, which would be a big problem for the economy. And I think if that were to happen, the Fed would have to really step up QE. They would have to really uh, crank up the printing presses, not that they're not already doing that, but they would be very, very concerned about a backup in rates like that. And so they would have to create even more inflation, print even more money to prevent that from happening, which is why gold should not be going down. Gold is a hedge against inflation. Bonds are not a hedge against inflation. If you own bonds, you need to hedge bonds for inflation. So people that have a lot of bonds need to hedge that with gold. Gold is a better hedge for bonds than it is for stocks because people that have a lot of bonds, they are actually more vulnerable to inflation than people that have a lot of stocks. People keep thinking gold is a hedge against the stock market. It's a better hedge against the bond market. But right now, Everybody's just thinking in terms of risk on, risk off, what's a safe haven, what's aggressive. And so gold is being looked at as a safe haven, just like bonds or just like the Swiss franc or the yen, which were down again today, although not that substantially and other currencies were up. Um, but gold is just getting lumped in with those assets with people not recognizing the big difference that you have with gold. And you can't be bearish on gold because you're bullish on the U.S. stock market. Because when you understand why you're bullish on the U.S. stock market, well, because the Fed is creating all this inflation, the Fed is printing all this money, right, and artificially interfering, that is all good for gold. The reason the stock market is going up is the reason that gold is going to go up even more. So again, these sell-offs are buying opportunities. Uh, these declines in, in, in the gold stocks are also buying opportunities. But I want to um, you know, leave the, the topic of, uh, of the jobs numbers, and I want to actually talk about the 100-year anniversary. And maybe anniversary is not a good word because you, know, that's, you celebrate something when you refer to an anniversary. And so this is nothing that we would want to celebrate. It's just we've had to endure this for 100 years. And that is the Jones Act. Right? The Jones Act was passed 100 years ago today. And I, I, I tweeted about it uh, earlier today, and, and it reminded me of, you know, a quote, or I paraphrased Winston Churchill, 
Because probably never in all of history has a law that benefited so few been in existence so long yet negatively impacted so many, right? So many Americans are worse off as a result of the Jones Act. And there's a very small group who are better off, yet the Jones Act has endured for 100 years because of, of politics. And this is why the founding fathers were so you know, worried about democracy. And they called them factions, and they were worried about exactly what's happened. Because the problem politically with the Jones Acts is that everybody suffers a little bit. I mean, some Americans suffer more than others. People living in Puerto Rico, like I am, or people that live in Hawaii, or people that live in Alaska, they suffer more from the Jones Act than people that live in other states. But certainly anybody who lives uh, on the eastern or western seaboards, they're suffering. Uh, the whole country suffers to some extent. But nobody really knows that their suffering is due to the Jones Act. And they don't really know how much it is. Because all the Jones Act does is it increases shipping costs, right? Which, you know, and everything that we consume has to be shipped somewhere. Either it's shipped to us in a finished form or a lot of the raw materials get shipped around. And so everything we buy costs a little bit more money because shipping costs have been artificially inflated uh, by the Jones Act. Now, who benefits? Well, you have a very small number of people in the shipping industry, which is a tiny industry, which I'm going to get into, but they have an enormous benefit and the benefits are very clear. And so they are politically motivated to make sure that those benefits um, continue. And, and so, you know, they, they have a lobbying to make sure that the Jones Act is there, whereas the, the broader population, uh, they, 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 don't, they don't really come together on this issue because for any one person, the issue is not important enough uh, for it to uh, matter. But for the people who benefit, it's all they care about. And, and if you go back to why we had a Jones Act, right? This was 1920 that it was enacted. And the supposed impetus for this was to make sure that we had a good merchant marine in case we we're in a war. Right? that we needed the vessels to supply our troops or maybe even to, to take these uh, ships uh, that were commercial ships and maybe we could use them in the military, right? We could use them in the war. We could call them into service somehow. And so in order to be safer, right, we wanted to have a, a, a big viable merchant marine during peacetime in case we needed them during wartime. Because, you know, we, we didn't want to be beholden to foreigners, right? I mean, what if we were there was a blockade? I mean, we, we wouldn't want to be vulnerable to depend on having to use foreign ships. So the idea is, hey, let's try to protect our industry from foreign competition so that we'll have a bigger, more vibrant industry uh, just in case we need it, right? So when they, when they passed the Jones Act, there, there's three key provisions of the Jones Act, right? The ships have to be owned by American companies. They have to be built in America, right, with American workers building the ships. And then they have to be crewed by Americans. So there are three important things that the ship needs to, these criteria need to be met before it's allowed to transport any commercial cargo between two U.S. ports, right? So if you're going to pick up cargo in New York and drop it off in Florida, you got to do that on a, a Jones Act ship, right? So that's the deal. Save a little more this month. Chime checking accounts have features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe and no monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at chime.com slash goals24. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. SpotMe eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. 
Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So anyway, this law has been in effect for 100 years. And what has the effect been? The U.S. shipping industry is virtually non-existent, right? We only have, in America, 98 ships, actual ocean ships, right? The way they're defined, it's you can carry 1,000 tons in the ocean. We only have 98 of them. There are over 53,000. I got the number here, 53,732. I mean, maybe it's more by now, but almost 54,000 ships. America has 98. We have less than one-fifth of 1% of the ships. That's it. We build in this country, our shipping industry, we build about two to three ships per year. That's all we do. China, China builds 4,000 ships a year. 4,000. We build two to three. Korea builds 2,300. And I'm not talking about boats because they have other things that they build. I'm talking about these big ships on the ocean. Korea builds 2,300 a year. Japan builds 1,600 ships, right? So those are real industries building ships. I mean, we do it for a hobby, two to three ships. Turkey, Turkey builds 330 ships per year. Vietnam, Vietnam, 327 ships per year. America, two, three ships. That's the industry that we're protecting. It's ridiculous. We got 98 ships. And, you know, back in the year 2000, we had 193. We have fewer ships. We're destroying the ships because, you know, they become obsolete and they get scrapped. We're not even building enough ships to replace the ships that are scrapped. Back in 1980, we had 250 ships. The industry is dying and it's the Jones Act that's killing it, right? The government said we're going to protect the shipping industry and they destroyed the shipping industry. In Europe, right, 40% of all the merchandise that is delivered is delivered by ships, 40%. In America, ocean liners, ships in the ocean rather, 2%, 2%, that's it. That's all the cargo that moves in the US by water, by ship. Now, if you include the rivers, right? We have these big rivers and there's barges and stuff going down there. Yeah, then it's about 6%. But if you just look at Ships, it's 2%. Oh, and by the way, I meant to mention that you'll read a lot about, you know, that when all the propaganda, the pro-Jones Act propaganda, they'll say that there's 40,000 ships in the United States, not 98. Yeah, there's 40,000 if you count all these little teeny ships. More than half of those, like 60, 65% of those 40,000 are barges that are on the rivers, you know, like, you know with hauling garbage and stuff like that. And then you got a bunch of little tugboats in those numbers. So I'm talking about real big ships on the ocean, right? That's the ones that we we, we, uh, we barely have any of. And, and, and so we're not using ships. And th- this is how it works. So, so let's say a, uh, a ship comes over and it has merchandise from Europe and it drops it off at a port in New York, right? It can only pick up merchandise in New York if it's destined to go to another foreign country. It can't pick something up in New York and bring it down to Washington or bring it down to North Carolina or bring it down to Florida. Even if it's going down to those ports anyway to drop off stuff, it can't pick up any additional cargo and drop it back off. So that means an American who has stuff he wants to ship down south can't put it on that boat, even though there's empty space. So he's got to hire a truck or he's got to put it on on a train. And, you know, the most energy efficient, right? If you're trying to reduce your carbon footprint, the most energy efficient way 
to uh, ship stuff is on a boat, on a ship, especially if the ship is going to go between ports anyway and it's got empty space. You might as well load more cargo on it. It's not going to take any extra energy. It's not going to have any extra emissions if you put more stuff in there. But the U.S. government will not allow uh, any more stuff to be put in there. So as a result of this, everything costs more. You know, if you want to ship oil from the Gulf of Mexico to New England, right, it costs about $6 a barrel. To ship it to Canada, which is further north, right, so it's more, it's a longer trip, it only costs $2. So it's three times as expensive to shift stuff from uh, the, the Gulf of Mexico to um, uh, New England than it is to ship it all the way north uh, to, uh, to Canada. And so obviously this is uh, hurting American industry. And you know, a lot of times um, Americans are forced to buy products from foreigners as opposed to Americans because it's cheaper to get stuff from foreign sources. That happens all the time in Alaska and Hawaii and in, in Puerto Rico. You know, Puerto Rico, we, we buy rice in Puerto Rico. We buy rice from China, right? Why are we buying Chinese rice? I mean, there's we do have some rice in the United States, but the reality is it's cheaper to bring the rice all the way over here from China than it is to bring it from the United States. You know, this is uh, another example of this. So this is, I think it was last year. Um, Puerto Rico wanted to import some liquid natural gas. And they wanted to import it from the United States because we had a lot of natural gas, the prices were low, and Puerto Rico, Preba, which is the power company here, um, a lot of the power uh, is generated based on natural gas. And so we need the natural gas to power the grid. And so Puerto Rico wanted to buy the natural gas from the United States. The problem was there was no way to get it here because we don't even have a Jones Act vessel that is capable of carrying liquid natural gas. They don't exist, right? So it's impossible. If you want to buy natural gas from the United States, it's impossible to bring it to Puerto Rico. Now there are, I forget, maybe four or 500 of these ships in the world that can do it. They're just not American ships because, you know, it costs, what I say, six times as much, seven times as much to build a ship in America as it does to build it someplace else. So none of these ships are built here. So none of them are Jones Act compliant. So Puerto Rico was trying to get a waiver because it wanted to buy this American natural gas, which would have benefited the U.S. company that was selling it. And it would have benefited Puerto Ricans because it was a good price, right? So we wanted President Trump to sign a waiver, just a one-time waiver that said, hey, you're allowed to buy this natural gas from an American business we will give you a waiver so that you can put that national gas, natural gas on a foreign ship because there are no American ships that even exist that can do it. So obviously granting the waiver, right, would not cost any American jobs. In fact, it would help create some American jobs because now we would be buying uh, American gas. Well, anyway, so Trump was about to sign this bill. And last minute, he got bombarded with lobbyists, right? In particular, two Republican senators from Alaska came up, right? Alaska. Alaska is one of the states that is most hurt by uh, the Jones Act, right? Because you can't transport anything to and from Alaska and California, for example, uh, because, of the, because of the Jones Act. Right. Other, so they have to take things on rail or they have to use trucks to go through Canada to get to America or they got to put stuff on airplanes. You know, we actually uh, put cattle, live cattle on airplanes because we, we can't put them on boats, uh, which would be a lot more efficient. I mean, we're, we're, we're spending a lot of money. It's like it's ironic that the the uh, legislation was supposed to help the um, the, the shipping industry, but by destroying the shipping industry, well, maybe it helped uh, the, the trucking industry because now a lot of stuff that would have gone by ship goes by truck instead. But you would think that Alaska would be against the Jones Act or Hawaii would be against the Jones Act, right? Because they're an island, right? Everything is coming by ship. Everything in Hawaii is more expensive because of the Jones Act. Right? And there's no shipping in. They're not building ships down there, right? 
you know, so, I mean, everybody's cost of living is higher because of the Jones Act, particularly in Hawaii and Alaska, right? Puerto Rico, we don't have any senators. We don't have any congressmen. So we, we don't, we're, we're not involved in the d- discussions, right? But you've got congressmen and senators in Alaska and Puerto Rico. So why are they such strong supporters of the Jones Act? In fact, the strongest advocates for the Jones Act, other than places like Louisiana, let's say, where they do have a shipbuilding industry, right, are the states that you would think that would be the most wanting to get rid of it. The states that are suffering the most from the Jones Act requirement. But no, it's the senators in Alaska and, and Hawaii that are the strongest supporters of the Jones Act. And at first, that would be counterintuitive. It's like, why would that be? Those should be the guys that want to get rid of it. Except the uh, shipping lobby knows this, right? The shipping lobby knows that, hey, Alaska should really want to get rid of the Jones Act because they're really disproportionately suffering. The same thing in, in Hawaii. So what happens is the lobbyists want to really give a lot of money to the senators in those states basically to be against, to be in favor of the Jones Act because they know that without that money, they're going to be against the Jones Act. So they're basically bribing these senators, right, it, to sell out their own constituents, right, to do something that harms their own constituents just to get campaign contributions, which is what's going on. And I'm sure the lobbyists also say, if you do not support the Jones Act, if you say anything negative about the Jones Act, which is hurting your own people, not only are we not going to give you any money, we're going to fund your opponent. We're going to find somebody else who is in favor of the Jones Act, and we're going to fund their campaign, and they're going to beat you, right? And so you're going to be out of office. And so that's why where, where the stakes are the highest, right? The, the, the states that suffer the most, that's where the Senate uh, is, is most in favor of keeping it. So what happened was when word was out that Trump was going to grant this waiver, it was the Alaskan senators. They came in these two Republicans. And it's ironic, it's Lisa Murkowski is one of them. And Lisa Murkowski just recently came out and says she doesn't even think she can support Trump, right? She doesn't think he should be reelected. And that, that infuriated Trump. And Trump was out there saying, well, I know where I'm going to be in two years. I'm going to come to Washington. I'm going to campaign against you. Anybody with a pulse, just announce you're running. I'll endorse you, right? He's really pissed at Lisa Murkowski. Meanwhile, he basically backstabbed Puerto Rico. He sold out Puerto Rico uh, to appease her because she was like, hey, my backers, right? I have these big donors that want uh, to keep the Jones Act. And, and, and the thing is, the waiver wouldn't have done anything, right? But the Jones Act lobbyists, what they're afraid of is the camel's nose under the tent. Even though this one-time waiver would not have, you know, done anything to harm uh, the, the profits of the Jones Act businesses because Puerto Rico was not going to buy, was not gonna, is not going to use a U.S. ship because it's impossible because the ship isn't there, right? So this one waiver would have done nothing, right, to diminish the profits of the industry. But what they were afraid of is the precedent of the camel's nose under the tent. Hey, where there's one waiver, there's another waiver, and then another waiver, and then another waiver. So they had to shut it down. They had to nip it in the bud. And so even though President Trump was initially ready to sign the waiver, he ended up not doing it. And so then Puerto Rico ended up buying the liquid natural gas from Russia and was able to come here on a foreign ship. So because of the Jones Act, Puerto Rico was forced to buy its natural gas from Russia instead of uh, uh, from the United States. And in fact, a lot of American businesses end up buying products from foreign companies rather than American companies because it's cheaper to bring the stuff across the Atlantic or the Pacific than to just run it up the coast because of the high cost of using a Jones Act ship. So it's not just higher transportation costs. All, all American industry, the, the entire country has been rendered less productive as a result of the Jones Act. Also, a dying industry that barely exists can hold on to some monopoly profits, right? And in fact, some of these guys, Jones Act companies, were actually convicted uh, of um, 
of, of price fixing or racketeering with Puerto Rico. And they had some of these guys went to jail and they had to pay, pay, pay big fines because they were rigging the market and fixing prices and really screwing Puerto Rico even more than they were screwed anyway. The whole industry is corrupt. And we need to get rid of the Jones Act, especially since the very purpose of the Jones Act, right? Because we might need the merchant marine in times of war. First of all, times have changed in the last hundred years. I mean, a hundred years ago, we didn't even have an air force let alone a space force. I mean, we don't need the merchant marine for the next war. And in fact, go back to the Gulf War, right? In the Gulf War, we had to supply all of the troops that we had in, in, in Iraq and in the Middle East, right? And there were no American ships. We had to rely almost 100%. Maybe we had one US ship out of the whole, how many we used? Uh, uh, 177, I think was the number I read. 177 foreign ships were used to help bring supplies to support our troops in, in the Gulf War, right? So the reason we had a Jones Act was to make sure in times of war, we had a merchant marine that we could rely on. And then we had a war and we had no merchant marine because the very protectionist legislation that was meant to, to make us have a, a vibrant shipbuilding industry is what destroyed the shipbuilding industry because it was no longer globally competitive. It was protected from the competition that would have kept it vibrant. And, and our whole ability to have a shipping industry was destroyed uh, because, of, because of this legislation. So I don't know, you know what it's going to take to ever get rid of it because as I said, you've got this powerful lobby out there that is bribing uh, the, the very senators and congressmen that should be most in favor of getting rid of it. And those are the ones that are getting paid uh, to want to promote it and save it. And then, of course, you also have the idea that, hey, it does protect some union jobs. And so there's some camaraderie, right? All the labor unions kind of stick together. And it's like, hey, you know, we need uh, to support our brethren here in the, in the shipbuilders union. And so they kind of all come together, even though organized labor doesn't realize that they're barely protecting any jobs. The number of jobs that are being saved in the shipping industry, right, is tiny compared to the jobs that are being destroyed because we have the Jones Act. If we had a more competitive economy, right, if we didn't have to use these Jones Act ships, then a lot more jobs would be created in other areas. See, this is an example of the seen and the unseen, right? We see the bogus jobs that we have because of the Jones Act, at least we think we do, because right now, obviously, if we eliminate the Jones Act, I mean, uh, you know, these Jones Act ships, of course, would collapse in value. And, uh, you know, and probably there would be a lot of job losses uh, because our industry had been protected for so long, it just can't survive anymore. Uh, so there would be these job losses. Uh, I think we'd have a lot more people working in shipping had we never had this protectionist legislation for the last hundred years. But because we've destroyed our industry with a hundred years of protectionism, it's very vulnerable. So if we got rid of the Jones Act, yes, there would be an immediate loss of some jobs. But then there would be massive jobs gained in other industries that are now much more competitive. And because they're more competitive, they can expand and they can hire more people. In fact, what we can't see right now are all the people who are not employed because the Jones Act has destroyed their employment opportunities. So we don't see that. We see the jobs that the Jones Act creates or protects but we don't see the far more numerous jobs that the Jones Act uh, has prevented from coming into existence or has outright destroyed. Anyway, I want to um, circle back again and talk a little bit more about uh, the, uh, the situation regarding George Floyd and the new narrative now about uh, you know, how America is replete with racism and, you know, America as a nation needs to atone for this. And we need massive increases in government spending and programs and social awareness. I mean, even, you know, Uber Eats came out today and, and said that, you know, they're going to they're not going to charge for delivery from black owned restaurants anymore, at least till the end of the year. Right. So if you're a black owned business and you want to deliver, they're going to you know, give you an advantage. Uh, you know, they want to show that they that they that they care and that they're not discriminating. So they're going to discriminate in favor of black owned businesses and give them a better deal uh, they, than they would give uh, white owned in, uh, businesses. But all of this uh, newfound sensitivity to this rampant uh, systemic racism has to do with the fact that George Floyd, who happens to be black, died at the hands 
of police, two of whom out of four, half of the police were white, right? Because if you look at those four guys and they've all been charged now, two of them are white, one of them is Asian and one of them is, is black. Now, I mean, he's kind of light-skinned black, so I think he, he could be a mixture, but he, I think he identifies as black. But anyway, so let's say he's black. But these four guys, two of whom are white, kill an African-American man. And because the African-American man is black, it's just assumed that this was racially motivated. And the reason that George Floyd is dead is because he's black, right? And that's because black lives don't matter. And that's why the police were so reckless Either they just were negligent or they deliberately killed him because he's black and because his life doesn't matter. And this incident caught on film is proof, right, of what we've all been in denial of, that black lives don't matter and that it's not just the police, but it's all aspects of American society. This is just the latest example for all to see. And now we all have to, you know, have a national effort uh, to do this. And the reason I want to bring it up again is because... I happened to look today at a video of another situation that happened four years ago, right? A guy named Tony Timpa, who was a 32-year-old guy, and he lived in, in Dallas, Texas. And he died at the hands of police, right? In circumstances that were almost identical to the circumstances surrounding George Floyd. I mean, almost identical the main difference was that Tony Timpa was white, right? George Floyd was black, right? And you can Google this on YouTube and you can see uh, the, um, what happened. In fact, I watched the entire 40 minutes of raw footage. And I, I would, I, you should read that, if, I mean, watch the whole thing if you really want to see what happened. Because I initially watched a much shorter version. And that one really, really made the police look bad. Not that they weren't bad. But if you just saw, uh, you know, a, a smaller cut, and this was all from the the, the the webcam, right, that the police had or their 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 uh, that they wear their bo- body camera, right. So the police had this footage uh, of this guy. Anyway, and I'm gonna I'm gonna go over the the, the, the circumstances. So, 32 year old guy, um, never been in trouble with the police. I mean, 30, he, he, had, he did get a drunk driving at one point, DWI. He was in an accident. Nobody was killed. And he banged up his own car, got a suspended sentence. But he had never been in prison, right? Uh, whereas George Floyd had been in prison multiple times. I mean, some of them were drug offenses. But the most recent uh, uh, jail was for uh, armed home invasion, where he held an African-American woman at gunpoint and ended up going to jail for, for five years. So, I mean, he's not the gentle giant that he's being uh, portrayed as. Not that I'm saying that he deserved to be killed, but the point is this guy had, had, had never committed any crimes, never been to jail at all, right? Uh, he's married, he's, you know, he's, he's got an eight-year-old boy, and he drove, you know, he went to, drove his Mercedes, uh, and he ended up, you know, getting into a sketchy area. And uh, this guy was a schizophrenic, so he had a, a psychological condition but he wasn't taking his meds. And I think he was a little paranoid. And he was also doing coke, right? Because according to the autopsy, he had cocaine in his system. So what happened is the guy got nervous and he got paranoid, right? He, he was, you know, he went to like, a, he was in an adult bookstore or a sex shop or something weird like that in some sketchy neighborhood. And he got paranoid. So he called 911. The guy called the cops himself, right? Now, before the cops got there, he got paranoid and he ran out into the street, very busy street. And the security guards that worked at this adult shop got worried. And they went and they, they subdued him and they cuffed him, right? They put handcuffs on him, supposedly to, to protect him from being killed in traffic. Then the police that Tony Timpa called show up and he's already in cuffs, right? So now the police take over and they, they call the paramedics, right? But in the meantime, they now pin him to the ground, right? Uh, face down, just like um, uh, Floyd was. And the officer basically has his knee on his, on, on his back. And, is there, and, and they actually, they, they hogtied uh, his, his feet together and they, he's cuffed and they're, 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 they're pushing him down to the ground. And before they pushed him down there, he was, you know, kind of moving around. He was trying to get up. And they were preventing him from, from getting up. Now, 
they are restraining him for 14 minutes. The entire time that they are restraining him, the guy is screaming for his life. Please let me up. Please don't kill me. Don't kill me. Please, please. Over and over again. Screaming and he's afraid he's going to die. Now, the policemen are reassuring him. You're not going to die. You're going to be okay. What are you on? What did you take? Um, and you know, when I first watched the shorter version, I was really, really angered because you see the policemen, they're actually laughing. I said, later on, it, you know, he, he, the guy stops moving. He passes out. He actually dies. They don't know that. They think he falls asleep. And after a while, when he's not moving, they're like, you know, what happened to him? I think he's asleep, you know. Um, but then when the paramedics arrive on the scene, which is now about 14 minutes, that's when they finally get off of him. They didn't even, you know, they didn't even stop restraining him. Even though he wasn't moving, they kept restraining him. The same thing they did with, with George Floyd. And so the paramedics come and they, they try to roll him over to put him in the ambulance. And that's when they, they're like, they, now they're worried. And one guy actually says, God, I hope, I hope we didn't kill him, right? And, 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 and then the other guy's like, what do you mean we? Like, ah, you're the one that, you know, so and they, they kind of laugh about it, right? And, you know, when I first saw them laughing, I mean, God, this, they think this guy might be dead and they're laughing. But it became obvious to me when I watched the whole thing that at that point, they really tried to help him originally. And they didn't think he was dead. That's why they were kind of joking, because they were pretty sure he was alive. It wasn't until he got into the ambulance and the, and, the, and the paramedics were like, this guy's not breathing. And then nobody's laughing. And then they're trying to save his life. They're trying to resuscitate him but they weren't able to do it. And so he, he died, right? And so the, the autopsy that they performed uh, said that it was a homicide. I'm reading, I wrote it down here. De cause of death, sudden cardiac death due to toxic effects of cocaine and the psychological stress associated with physical restraint, right? So his death was ruled a homicide. Three of the five policemen were indicted by a grand jury for a crime, but they were indicted for a misdemeanor, not, not even a felony, not even like manslaughter, third degree murder. They were indicted for a misdemeanor. Remember, the guy died after being restrained by four, for 14 minutes, caught on film, uh, and it was a misdemeanor. But then... The charges were dropped. They didn't even stand trial for the misdemeanor. They didn't have to plead guilty to the misdemeanor. The charges were dropped. And then on top of that, they got their jobs back on the police. They got reinstated uh, by the police. So this is my whole point, right? This story never made it out of Dallas. It never became a national story, right? A guy killed by police and the policemen suffer no consequences. Right? And imagine what would have happened four years ago right? if Tony Timpa had been black. Everything else had been exactly the same. Right? No difference. The exact same circumstances. Just change one thing. Just make Tony Timpa black instead of white. This would have been a national story. This would have been all we were talking about. How can these racist white cops be laughing as they murdered an African-American? Right? This shows you how black lives don't matter. This black life mattered so little that they were laughing about it as he died. They would be saying, this is murder. This isn't an accident. They deliberately held him down. They kept his knee on him for 14 minutes, even though he's screaming and begging for his life and saying, don't kill me. These racist cops killed him anyway. When that's not what they did. In fact, you know, when I read a little bit about why the cops, again, were restraining him, they were afraid that he was going to run into the road and, and, and maybe get run over and get killed. And they didn't want that to happen. They thought they would be blamed that the guy in their custody ran into the street and got run down by a car. But obviously, I think that they chose the wrong way to restrain him. I mean, I don't know why didn't they just put him in the back of a police car and shut the door uh, you know, maybe they just assumed the ambulance would get there sooner. I don't know. You come up with all kinds of reasons. But to me, they appeared negligent. The cops, maybe they were young. Maybe they, they, they should have been better trained. I mean, were they just bad guys? Maybe. I don't know. But all of the arguments that are being made now about the four officers uh, that killed George Floyd, you could have made all those arguments even stronger, given the laughter 
I mean, could you imagine people laughing as somebody is dying, right? So I think these circumstances would have even been worse, right? As far as the black community would have been concerned about how much this proved uh, that racist police are out there and that, that black lives don't matter. But to me, what we're seeing now shows you exactly how much black lives do matter. Because here, when you have a black person who is killed by police, everybody wants justice for this guy and his family. Everybody wants these officers to be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. They don't want them just fired. They want them in jail for a long, long time. Yet, when you had a group of officers basically do the same thing to a white guy, there was no demand that there would be justice for his family or him. There was no demand that the police be held accountable for what they did. No, it just, it's just it's an obscure event. Now, part of it is because the media ignored it, right? I mean, maybe there was an uproar a little bit in Dallas. I don't know, uh, but it didn't go beyond there. And that's because the media doesn't care about those stories, right? If a white guy is killed by white policemen, that's not news. They don't care about police brutality. But if it's a black guy and now they can make it a racial issue, that's a story. That's what they want. They wait for these kind of stories to exploit them. And then, you know, you have this whole cottage industry out there. The Black Lives Matter, the Antifa, they are waiting for this to happen, right? And it's going to happen, right? If policemen kill civilians, right? I mean, as a percentage of all the arrests and all the encounters, it's still small, but you have all these policemen all over the country and sometimes people get killed. And sometimes those people are black. It's going to happen. It doesn't mean that they're killed because they were black. This guy, Tony Tippa, he wasn't black. He was as white as you could be. Yet he was killed. His death was ruled a homicide. So when you go back and see, it's not just because he was black. That's the whole narrative right now, right? That it only happened because he was black. And this proves that we're a race society. Well, it doesn't, right? The police are equal opportunity uh, uh, abusers when it comes to potentially use of excessive force. They're as likely to use it on a white guy as they are a black guy, right? So it's not race, but they are making this a, a racial issue. But again, I would just encourage anybody out there to go online and just, just check this out. And, 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 and just imagine, and especially if you can find a shorter version, there's just like four or five minute clips that don't show all of the, you know, the, the initial part where, you know, the, the officers, uh, you know, show that they're, they're, they're concerned with this guy and they're trying to help him, right? If you skip all that and just go to the later part where he's really screaming and then he dies and they start laughing. If you just look at that little part, it's much worse than when you go back uh, to, to the very beginning and see how it all started. But, you know, the, the, there, would have been a, there would have been an uproar. There would have been a furor over that. Uh, and so... What I am trying to do by bringing it up, I'm not trying to diminish what happened to George Floyd. That's still uh, an awful tragedy uh, that he died and he shouldn't have died and the policeman uh, should have uh, taken better care of him. Just like the policeman probably should have taken better care of Tony Timpa. And had they taken better care of him, he probably wouldn't die. Yeah, there were other extenuating circumstances. He was on cocaine. George Floyd was doing something. He was having trouble breathing anyway. He had a heart condition. So there were some extenuating factors where if George Floyd and Tony Timpa had been totally healthy and not taking drugs, then what the police did probably wouldn't have resulted in their deaths. But because they had some other circumstances, that's exactly what happened. And so the, perp the point is, it can happen to anybody. It doesn't matter what color you are. And so if we're going to make an issue of it at all, it should be one about the police need better training, right? Uh, they need to have better procedures uh, or, or whatever. It's about reforming potentially the police department to protect everybody equally, right? That to protect white people who may be killed because of negligence or excessive force and black people and Hispanics and Asian Americans and not try to use this to advance an agenda that really has at its very core socialism. That's what they're trying to do. They're trying to push a socialist big government agenda on us by, by introducing it under the guise of racism. We need to stamp out racism. How do we do that? By making government bigger, by making government more powerful, by having all these programs. And I talked at length on my last podcast. And in fact, we pulled that part out and we put up a clip 
of my last podcast where we just focused on these issues. But the point that I made on that podcast, it was that government policy is rewarding companies for discriminating, and whereas the free market uh, would, would, would punish them. And so what we really need is more capitalism and less government. But what we're gonna get is more government and less capitalism because we're gonna take something that isn't racial at all and we're gonna pretend it's racial. And then because it's racial, we're using that as uh, the reason why we need all these additional government programs that are basically going to result in even greater disparities than exist today between the African-American community and the larger population. We're just going to drive those disparities and make them worse with the additional laws and regulations and programs that are gonna be enacted, right? That instead of helping them, will end up hurting them, which again, just as like everything, I mentioned the Jones Act, right? Everything the government does, the, the um, consequence is the opposite of the intent. The intent of the Jones Act is to have a stronger domestic shipping industry. As a result, the domestic shipping industry is destroyed. The whole idea was we need to have a merchant marine that we can rely on in times of war, and then we have a war and we have to, we're completely dependent on foreigners because we have no domestic ship industry because we destroyed it by trying to protect it. And then all of the ancillary problems that now happen because we have a less of a competitive economy because transportation costs are artificially inflated. That affects all American businesses, even those that are not involved in shipping. And so everybody suffers. And the same thing happens with all of these laws that are designed to stamp out racism or stamp out discrimination. We end up getting more discrimination. We end up hurting most the very people that we're intending to help. And the same thing is gonna happen by trying to take this issue and make it into something racial when it's not. In fact, if you assume it's racial, just because uh, the person who dies is black and the people who killed him are white, if you simply assume that that is racial, just based on the races of the individuals, then that is being racist, right? If you, without any evidence whatsoever, if you just jump to a conclusion based purely on race, right? That's all you're doing is you're, you're making your decisions based on the races and no other information. And now you're saying that it was racially motivated then that's racist. So why don't we get beyond racism right, and, and get to the core of the matter, get to the real economic problems that the government is doing. That's what people have to worry about. It's government, not some racist boogeyman. It's big government. That's what uh, the African-American community needs to worry about. Get government off your neck. It's the government's foot that is suffocating the black community and not just the black community, the entire Nation is suffocating under the weight of the government. So let's remove that weight. Let's make government smaller and let's make the economy freer and bigger. But the most sensational aspect of the Tony Tippa uh, case, if Tony Tippa were black, would have been the fact that Tony is the one who called the police, right? In the George Floyd case, he was, you know, committing a crime. He was passing a phony money. So the somebody else called the police and they came to apprehend George Floyd. But in the Tony Tippa situation, Tony himself called the police. He was worried and he called the police. And so the police came. They responded for his cry for help. But when they showed up, instead of helping him, they murdered him. They killed him in cold blood. That's exactly what would have been said if Tony was black. They would have said, this is what it's like to be black in America. When black people call the cops, they get killed, right? When white people call the cops, the cops come to help them. But when a black person calls the cops, they end up getting killed because black lives don't matter, right? Because the blacks, the cops are racist, right? They don't like blacks. They just assume blacks are criminals. And so the minute they show up and they see a black guy, you know, they, they, they take him down and they kill him. That is exactly what they would have said, right? They would have said it was all about the white racist police killing a black person. And all the black person did was call the police for help. And this again is, this is what it's like to be black in America. You can't just call the police like a white person because we don't have white privilege. A white person calls the cops and they come to help. A black person calls to cops 
and they get murdered, right? This is what they would have said. And nobody would have been able to push up against that narrative. It would have been all on video. And this is exactly what everybody could have said, except none of it would have been true because they did this to a white person. All of this bad stuff happened to a white guy. A white guy called the cops and the cops he called killed him. Didn't matter. He didn't have any white privilege. It didn't get him off the hook. He still got killed. But you can always pretend that it's because he's black. When anything happens to somebody who happens to be black, you can always say that black is why it happened. And how do you stand against that? Because the minute you say that's not why it happened, oh, you're a racist yourself. You don't understand the suffering that blacks are enduring because how do you know? You've got white privilege. So whenever somebody plays the race card, I mean, you just got to fold, right? And they would have done that, believe me, in spades uh, with Tony Tippa. But he was white, so they couldn't do it. But now you have a circumstance where the person who dies happens to be black. And yes, the cops could have acted outrageously and recklessly, but they could have done the exact same thing if he was white, which is exactly what happened with Tony Tippa. Only Tony Tippa uh, wasn't black. He was white, so it was no big deal. And George Floyd, he's black. So, aha, this is racist. And now we can play it up. Uh, you know, he, he, we can... Uh, 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 you know, sanctify this guy or canonize him. He's, you know, he's now our hero and uh, he's, he's an example of why black lives don't matter and why we have a racist society. And so that point in particular, right, the fact that he called the police on his own and ended up dead, I think that would have been the big thing. That and the laughter, right? You call the cops and not only do they come and kill you, but they laugh about it as they're doing it. Anyway, that's it for now. I'm not going to get to the, the questions today because I, you know, I already spoke for about an hour. Uh, so I'm going to do that uh, on another podcast. By the way, the next time I do one of these podcasts, I will be back in Connecticut. I am flying home uh, from uh, Puerto Rico to uh, Connecticut or flying, not home, I'm home in Puerto Rico. I'm going to be heading uh, to my former home, uh, my now summer home in Connecticut uh, for the summer. Not really how... Not sure how long I'm going to be there. It kind of depends on the schools and how they reopen. Uh, but the next time I do a podcast, I will be uh, broadcasting uh, from Connecticut. So have a great weekend, everybody, and bye for now. Mm-hmm.